Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, August 23rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we'll take a look at Robinhood's earnings season premiere. Wells Fargo's had a bit of a change of heart, and Bill Spackman's plans take, well, another turn. Joining me, it's certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Just great. It's finally not raining. It was raining all weekend here, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seemed like we kind of we kind of got away with one here. Is tropical storm now? I guess it was hurricane at the time. Would you call it Henry, or would you call it? Henri. It depends where you are, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I took a lot of French growing up, and so my default when I see the spelling, it's to call it Hurricane Henri. But then I feel kind of, uh, it doesn't make me feel very good, so I just want to call it Henry. Yeah, makes sense. So Henry, at least we skated, you know, the the worst of Henry, and then... Hopefully our neighbors up to the north are all getting by okay. It looks like it could have been worse, but uh, yeah, beautiful day here in Northern Virginia as well. And uh, speaking of beautiful days, you know, Matt, uh, Robin Hood didn't have such a beautiful day uh, the day after its earnings announced, but the market did really receive, I think, the report all that well. Um, you know, going through the call, going through the release, I mean, I, I feel like all things considered, between the market's reaction and the actual numbers, so for me, this isn't a company I feel compelled to put on my radar. But I, I also feel like this earnings report could have gone far worse. Oh, yeah. The numbers look great. Yeah. Um, I mean, revenue more than doubled year over year. But what investors really need to know is this is really, it's not a stock trading app. Everyone thinks of Robinhood as this big trading app. They make the bulk of their money through options and crypto. Yeah, I was going to say it's a crypto trading app, there, isn't it? There are other platforms that do the stock trading part better, in my opinion. Um, SoFi has a platform that does it better. The ca- uh, Cash App uh, brokerage platform does stock trading better. No one does options trading quite as free and uh, democratized as Robinhood does. And no one offers as much variety in crypto as Robinhood does through a traditional brokerage platform. Robinhood has seven cryptocurrencies, including Dogecoin, um, which accounted for 34% of its crypto revenue this quarter, by the way. I mean, that can't be good, right? I mean, it's just that's like, listen, man, I mean, let's be real here, folks. That can't be good. Right. So my point is, those are things that are the crypto. I don't want to call it a fad yeah. because there, you know, there are some long-term use cases for it. Dogecoin's a fad. I'll be yeah. plain and simple. It feels um, like it is. It feels like it is. But... Is it going to be at its current interest level forever? I don't know. It maybe, it maybe not. And that was fifty-one percent of Robinhood's transaction-based revenue this quarter was crypto trading. That's you know, that's a lot to rely on crypto trading. That is. It really um, is. Options trading, especially, is kind of worrisome. It's not quite as big as crypto trading for Robinhood, but it it's a lot bigger than equities trading. It made up $165 million out of $565 million of revenue. Yeah. And options traders, if you don't know what you're doing with options, you could you could probably back me up on this. If you don't know what you're doing with options, you're probably going to lose money. 
I, well, I mean, I, I would agree. I mean, I think it, it, with options, it's something that just requires it, – it, it's far more nuanced. It requires more education. I, I think it's far more of an active style of investing, right? You need you need to stay on top of that strategy far more than you would if you're just a, a buy-to-hold investor taking that longer view. Right, and that's kind of the point. So Robinhood's relying on these their options traders to keep trading at these elevated volumes. But what happens when – you know, inexperienced option traders you know, buy too many call options and lose their money, and then lose interest. Well, in, I feel in, like we've seen in, we've in seen the doing. worst case scenario there, right? I mean, we we've seen some stories that exist right. the worst the worst of the worst case. So, I mean, I I would worry as a shareholder. I'm not a shareholder of Robinhood, but if I were, I would worry that they are so dependent on those two forms of revenue that make up almost between the two of them. That's you know ninety percent of their transaction based revenue. Yeah. Uh, they make a little bit of revenue from selling subscriptions. They have a premium, uh, the Robinhood Gold platform, that yeah. accounts for a little bit of revenue. But you know, 90% of, or close to it of their transaction-based commission revenue, in other words, you know, not commissions, but they make a payment for order flow, things like that, comes from crypto and options. That would worry me. If it was, if it was say, 50% stock trading revenue, great. That's sustainable. The, the crypto and options thing kind of scares me. I don't know about you. Well, it does. I mean, for me, I, I don't know if it scares me as much as it just makes me really doubt the the sustainability, right? I mean, I think that's the key. It's like it's one thing to do something well; it's one thing to do it well for long stretches of time. And I think that's where I grow a little bit concerned. And I think one of the signs with Robinhood that makes me uh, I view it a little bit more glass half empty. Um, it, it, so you look at assets under custody, right? And, and that was very—it was encouraging when you when you look at the actual number. Assets under custody reached 102 billion dollars. Um, I think that was up something like 205 percent from a year ago. And, and I mean that on the surface that sounds great, but now when you couple that with the actual number of cumulative funded accounts at 22 and a half million uh, accounts. You know, all of a sudden now you see that there's a there's this account average of around forty five hundred dollars, and so that's telling us a couple of things, right? It's telling us number one that these are not really on the average they're not high value clients, right? I mean forty five hundred dollars just that's not a really that's not a high value client, particularly when you look at something like a Schwab that holds like seven and a half trillion dollars under under custody, but. I would also imagine that of that forty five hundred average, that forty five hundred dollar average, I'd bet you the median is far lower, right? right? And so you've got this sort of one two punch of not the most valuable clients in the world, and they are really they're not investing as much as they're speculating. That that to me is scary. Right. So yeah, two kind of points to back that up. Yeah, I know the average. I don't know Schwab's average, but I know their average retirement accounts in the hundred thousand dollar ballpark. Yeah. Uh, at Schwab. And it's not just Schwab has the average account size that's about 20, you know, say 20 to 30 times greater than Robinhood. But it's not churning. It's right. not, they're not relying on high frequency trading. So you're relying on these relatively small balance accounts. And in a way, right now, those accounts are very valuable. Those are high value customers to Robinhood just because of how frequently they trade. Sure. Um, I mean, a Schwab account's not that valuable to Schwab if nothing ever moves in the account. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, they're valuable to Robinhood, but how sustainable is that from a smaller account like that? I know for a fact, my first trading account that I started with about $2,000 didn't end well for me. <laughs> uh, and they you are know, back in college and, 
I, I could see the same thing kind of happening with a fair percentage, not all, but a, a fair percentage of Robinhood's clients. And specifically the ones that are frequently trading cryptocurrencies and frequently trading options. People are using, you know, buying stocks in their, their Robinhood account to hold or buying Bitcoin in their account to hold. I'm not worried about. Yeah. It's those frequent traders who a lot of whom, not all, but a lot of whom don't know what they're doing. And they're starting with relatively small balances. So what happens when that goes the wrong way and they get bored of it or decide to, you know, use their get their speculation out through sports betting instead or or because I mean the, the lack of gambling options in 2020, remember, was a, a big reason why a lot why the gamification of trading really picked up. Well, I'm glad you brought up sports betting because that's that's what this really makes me think of. Uh, is is it, it's something tantamount to that? And and I mean, I I look at so I mean, I I enjoy you know throwing a few bucks on a game here and there. I mean, that's that's something. But I really enjoy doing that during football season. I mean, I'll I'll fiddle around with like golf during the majors and stuff like that. I couldn't care less about baseball and the NBA and whatnot. It's just I'm not going to ever gamble on that stuff because I don't care about it. So <laughs> there there are good. There's a good seven to eight months out of the year where I just am not really interested in. In, in placing too many wagers, so therefore there's no activity, and and I would imagine that in regard to something like a Robin Hood, if you've got people who uh, for the most part are are sort of speculating, somewhat you you could say gambling to 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 some extent, you know if if you're losing money, you start losing interest, right? And then you you start figuring, okay, there's no way to win. This thing is rigged against me. I'm going to go off to other you know greener pastures and try something else. And so yeah, to your point, I mean, it does make you wonder. Again, we go back to that one word, sustainable. I mean, how how long can they can they keep this up? It feels to me like they are just really. Uh, the clock is running on them to find new new avenues of revenue, right? Whatever that may be, subscription services, media, financial media services, whatever it may be, they really do need to double down on figuring out alternative revenue streams because I don't know that that being just a, a crypto slash options trading platform is going to cut it. I mean, at least from the investor's perspective. I mean, I have, I have no interest in investing in this business simply because of the way they make their money. Yeah, I mean, if I were an investor in Robinhood, I would want to see them double down on those subscription options. Yeah. Maybe, um, you know, they, they I said they offer seven different cryptocurrencies, Off, offer more of it only for people who are paying for access to it. <laughs> yeah. or, you know, it's like, you know, come up with different subscription products that appeal to the options traders and appeal to the crypto traders because that commission, it, it, it's not, or the, not the commission, I keep saying commission, the, the kind of the payment for order flow, the transaction based revenue that they make, it's not going to sustain at that level. They even called that out. They said that they're seeing a, a slowdown in the third quarter already. In yeah. terms of trading activity, that seems very believable. So I mean, it, it's it's, and even if it lasts, best case scenario, if it lasts, it's not going to be consistent. Yeah. So I I mean, recurring revenue. We always talk about software as a service businesses because they produce recurring revenue, and I, I'd love to see Robinhood kind of you know double down on that. If they can get to the point where subscription revenue is more than half of their total, I, I mean, that would get me interested. Yeah, you know one other little nugget that stood out to me in the call, and I'd be interested to get your your input here, your insight. It, I noticed they said they noted they are incurring losses from debit card chargebacks and reverse deposit transactions. In other words, people trying to fund accounts that they can't ultimately fund, and then that money gets charged back. And I mean, it, it wasn't. I mean, it it, it it wasn't something that is is so impactful to the business today. But it's not insignificant, right? It was forty million dollars during the quarter. I mean, that given the nature of of their demographic, I mean, that's something at least to keep in mind. I mean, we keep an eye on that number because if that number doesn't 
go down. If and worse, if that number continues to go up, then I think they've got another problem they need to address altogether. Yeah, it just kind of circles back to the controversial nature of a lot of what Robin Hood's doing. Like like I mentioned the gamification of trading. Having a lot of debit card chargebacks, which I'd have to imagine is not really a significant part of like Schwab's revenue. Yeah. Um, it could, could really stir up even more comp- controversy, I would think. Well, speaking of controversy, Matt, uh, several weeks back, we talked about Wells Fargo's uh, decision to shutter its personal lending uh, product. Um, it, it looked like it was uh, something where they more or less just decided one night they were going to stop offering these personal um, lines of credit, I believe they were. And then they said, well, they're doing it because they just felt like they needed to. And oh, by the way, it may impact your credit score. We're not really sure, but uh, you know, this is just what we're going to do. Uh, we said on on the show when we were talking about this initially that that probably the biggest risk to Wells Fargo was just in their messaging of this because it didn't seem to be very well planned out. Um, I could certainly understand consumers uh, doing a double take and saying, "What do you mean it might impact my credit score?" And this is going to be something that I have zero control over. So I, I wasn't ter- terribly surprised, Matt, to see that it seems like Wells Fargo has had a little bit of a change of heart. No, and it also seems like their PR people are getting better. Um, the, fir- the first time around, remember we said they spun it really poorly. They did. Um, they should have blamed the credit scoring thing on FICO because that's whose fault it was. Yeah. Um, they spun it better this time. They said they're bra- they're they're leaving uh, existing credit lines alone, provided that they're active. Um, you know, the customers are actively using them. Yeah. Um, they're they're not opening any new personal lines of credit, and they made that decision over a year ago, by the way. So that's nothing new. Um, Inactive accounts will be closed in December. So if you have a Wells Fargo line of credit that you're not using, they're going to go ahead and close it in December. And that's actually really common with a credit card, too. Um, I don't know about you if you've ever gotten one, but if I don't use a credit card for a year or so, they send me something saying your account's inactive and we might close it. Um, so it, it's it's a common practice with inactive accounts because, you know, banks want to lend money to people who want to borrow. So... But where I say they actually spun it a lot better this time, they said this decision was based on feedback from their customers. Well, I think it was based on pressure from people like Elizabeth Warren <laughs> and the and and the media and whoever else. I don't really think that it was the customers, but it, better messaging this time. Yeah, smart management decision. Um, and this is you know a, a pat on the back to the Wells Fargo's management. I think it's uh, they, they did it well. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, it does, it does, it, it, it didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. I mean, the decision is one thing, the way they messaged it, an entirely separate uh, thing. And, and it really did feel like the messaging was just, uh, they just, they just missed the mark. And so hopefully, I'd like to think that they did make this decision based on consumer feedback. Um, if the reality of the situation is that it was from other external pressures, uh, at the end of the day, I think it's still the right decision. And so it's good to see uh, that end result, no matter how they got there. And probably probably bodes, bodes well for their brand in, in the longer term as being a more customer-centric, customer-friendly, therefore-your-customer type brand, which ultimately, I mean, let's face it, with a bank like Wells Fargo, I mean, that's a very familiar brand. You want and you need, really, that consumer trust, that faith that that your bank, you're going to be there for your consumers, uh, for your customers when, when they need you most. And, and this, hopefully, 
hopefully makes customers feel a little bit better. What probably doesn't make people feel a lot better, at least people in the SPAC world and folks who follow Bill Ackman and Matt, I, I'm going to put you in both categories there. Uh, we've been talking about this story a lot, too. Um, I, I, I'll admit, I'm growing a little bit confused as to exactly what's going on here. And, you know, I like to say that investing is as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. Um, Bill Ackman in, in his SPAC uh, aspirations seem to uh, have been put on hold yet again and are now facing, I think, at least some litigation. Is, is, is Ackman making this more difficult than it really has to be? Well, kind of. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at some of my, my previous headlines about this. I, there's one that says, here's why Bill Ackman's SPAC is a good long-term value. Uh, one says, breaking down Bill Ackman's universal music deal. Here's why I'm excited about the deal. Um, here's why investors should stick with Pershing Square Tontine after the deal went away. What's That's, today's headline, yeah, Matt? Th- those four didn't <laughs> age very well, did they? Well, <laughs> what's today's headline, um, Matt? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, uh, but today's headline is why I'm cutting my losses and moving on. Well, you know, um, hey, it happens to the best of us. So here's why: this thing has been. Let's not be too. Let's not sugarcoat it. This has been a disaster. Yeah. Um. So Ackman raised four billion dollars in this spec. A spec. The purpose of it is to find a business, a business one singular, to take public um, through your, through this vehicle. Um. So they announced a relatively complex deal. I say relatively. It was the most complex spec deal I've ever heard of. Um, where they were going to acquire 10% of Universal Music, leave some money in the SPAC to find yet another target, and then create a whole new investment vehicle that doesn't even exist called a Spark, <laughs> and, and distribute Spark ac- uh, rights to the existing shareholders. The deal sounded great. It's not what SPACs are for. Right. So the SEC quickly had an issue with it, and the deal was canceled pretty shortly after it was announced, if you remember. Yeah. Um. That disappointed me specifically. It seems like someone like Bill Ackman would have done the due due diligence to see if they could do that deal. They, you, if if you were going to run into road regulatory roadblocks that quickly, you couldn't have found that out before you announced it. <laughs> um, so that was that was red flag number one. But I held on because he said, "Okay, well now we have four billion dollars. We were already in talks with a few other businesses. We're still going to try to find someone to take public." We'll do a, a traditional SPAC merger instead. We have 11 months, whatever. We'll be fine. So I held on. You know, the stock had come down a little bit. It didn't seem worth selling at that point. But then over the weekend, he puts out, or yeah, he puts out the shareholder letter that essentially said two things. One, he's not looking for an acquisition target anymore and plans to return investors money, $20 a share. And number two, that they're going to try to accelerate the creation of this spark. Uh, vehicle and distribute a warrant to each shareholder so they can participate in that deal at cost. Huh. So there's really no investment thesis here. Um, you know, you, you get your $20 back. So that kind of creates a price floor. So that's a limit to how much the shares will go down at this point. But the only reason to hold is to try to get one of these spark warrants, which is an investment vehicle that doesn't even exist yet and would require the New York Stock Exchange to change a rule in order for it to exist. That doesn't seem worth keeping my money tied up in anymore. I tend to agree. I it's tend not, to agree. It's, it's not a SPAC. It's a SPAC that's not looking for a target. <laughs> um, you remember in Iron Man when he said, this is a weapons company that's not making weapons. I kind of feel like <laughs> it's that kind of situation here right now. 
Um, so w what's the reason to hold? And I can't really come up with a good answer to that question. Well, I mean, I think that's that's a, a, a very pragmatic way to look at it. I mean, it, it feels like this is become you know the ultimate forward-looking uh, investment and and not really in a good way but I mean I think there's a good lesson for folks out there and, and it's one that you've learned I know all all along your investing journey is one that I've learned as well um, and it's one that I know a lot of our listeners have either learned or are in the process of learning and and that is just that when the thesis changes it's okay to change your mind when the situation changes, you have to reassess. Now, there there are levels of change, right? Some changes are more material than others, and, and there are some changes that, well, that may not be that big of a deal. This, I, I would, I would qualify this. This, I'd classify this as, as a big deal. I mean, this is this is a significant change, and it's one where it feels like, okay, the investing case just isn't what it was before. I have to reassess. Is it still worth keeping my money tied up here? What does this future look like? And, and clearly, it's changed enough to the point where you don't feel like it's it's worth tying that money up. There's an opportunity cost involved. Yeah, and I know you've said a lot of times on the show that humility is a, a great characteristic of any investor. Sure. So it's important for investors to be able to admit when they were wrong. Yeah. I was wrong about this. I would like Ackman to admit the same. I think he's. <laughs> I think this the. <clears throat> He said he wants to return investors' money, but if and only if the Spark thing is approved. Yeah, he should just admit that the SPAC is not working out. They're not going to be able to find a target, which he said in his letter, and just return investors' money and, and move on. Create the Spark if you want to, and let people buy in if you want to. But just return, admit you're wrong, and move on. It was a, he, Ackman's great at spinning things. Speaking of Wells Fargo, it, it, it was it was well spun, but at the end of the day, it, this really hasn't worked out the way he wanted it to, and it's time to move on. Well, from your mouth to Ackman's ears, we can only hope that he uh, he gets out in front of it. But we shall see. I'm still an uh, Ackman fan, though. I say that with peace and love. Well, there you go. There you go. We'll <laughs> leave it on that note, Matt. It, it was uh, it was always it's always a pleasure to to talk with you on Mondays. I, I uh, appreciate you setting the time aside to jump in and, and talk with us again today. Of course, always fun to be here. And that'll do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks today to Austin Morgan for mixing the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.